Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. We pray that you will be greatly blessed as you listen to this sermon, delivered verse by verse by Pastor Teacher Ben Dowdy. Join us as we are pointed to the grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone, as recorded in God's Holy Word. Go to uh, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Today we're going to look at verse 32 to 42. Let's go ahead and read it. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. This is God's word. If you were to ask me what is my favorite book or or chapter or verse of the Bible... I might go to Ecclesiastes. I never thought I would like Ecclesiastes, but when I taught through that years ago, it became automatically one of my, my faves. And uh, if you were to ask me what my favorite chapter of the Bible, I would say Romans 8. I believe it is the Mount Everest of the good news that is drenched with the implications of what we're looking at today and during this season uh, as we go through Mark. But let's turn the tables and let's frame a different type of question. If you were to ask the Bible, if the Bible could speak to you in a dialogue and say, Bible, what is your favorite part of your book? I think the Bible would go to Mark chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16. I think the Bible would say that my favorite part of the story is the passion of Christ. Uh, Everything in the Old Testament is a picture 
of this. Everything in the New Testament is because Jesus was crucified for sinners, because he bodily rose from the dead. This is how we are then to think and to feel and to to live. And I think the Bible would say this is my favorite part of the story. I, I mean, having said that, it is not pleasant. We're talking about blood and, and sweat and failure and nails and crown of thorns and illegal trials and the greatest murder in human history. So it's not that it's the Bible's favorite part because it's this wonderful Christmas movie but because God in his eternal counsel decided that the greatest way he would show his heaviness, his weightiness, his glory, his doxa, his, his glory was through a dead naked man hanging on a hill on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And we are now just hours away from that. It is the middle of the night The final, the last real Passover has already happened. That meal went on for some five hours, probably from five until about midnight or afterwards. There's a lot of other things that are happening during these final hours before 9 a.m. when Jesus begins to hang on a cross. But this is the next step. It is, if you look at uh, verse Verse 32, it is happening in a place called Gethsemane. You see, people are in Jerusalem and the gardens are outside the city. The people is, are just pouring in. Every Airbnb in first century Jerusalem is full and is packed and is probably tenting going on. Hundreds of thousands of people are here for Passover week. And over and over again, some unnamed disciple, follower of Jesus, had offered up his his garden outside of Jerusalem for the disciples to go to. It was kind of a respite for the disciples. If you look at John 18 and verses 1 and 2, you'll see that apparently the disciples exactly knew where it was and thought of it very favorably, but not in this particular Time. This is a time when Jesus reaches a state in his humanity that we have never seen in Mark. They get to this place, Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, the eleven, there's eleven, he says to the eight, so Judas Iscariot's already disappeared. He's already en route to hand Jesus over to be tried and crucified. But there's 11, and Jesus says to the eight, sit here until I have prayed. And then he takes Peter and James and John, and we know that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that in the new covenant we're all priests and sons and daughters. I'm not above you and you're not above me. But Jesus did have his outer circle, and then he had his three. 
What a three they were, Peter, James, and John. James and John, the sons of thunder, they were right before this arguing over who would sit at the right and who would sit at the left hand of Christ in his kingdom. Oh, and then there was Peter, how we looked at Peter last week and saw how he talked with such braggadocia and self-confidence. I mean, good old Peter, his heart was in the right place, but he was so full of himself. And these were the three that Jesus took into his inner sanctum. And they go and they follow him. And it's interesting that Luke's account of this part of passion of Christ says that Jesus then went a stone's throw away from them. So they're within earshot of what Jesus is going to talk to his father about. I think we are on sacred ground. We are invited into the heavenlies as we listen in on Jesus conversation with his father so if you want to put three words up we'll sort of work our way through this and use them to kind of build the story and then we'll just kind of spend the last few minutes taking away some some comfort from it but I would say in verses 32 to 35 we see the distress of the God man particularly in his humanity one of the things that we celebrate is in Christmas is that the Word became flesh. I mean, in chili con carne, carne con asada, meat, it's it, Latin, it's this idea that the Word became fleshy. And, and, and the, the early church, even into the third and the fourth centuries, the councils would get together and, and they were always struggling to adequately and accurately define who this Jesus is, that he is eternally God and that he became man in the form of a baby without ceasing to be God, that he wasn't human minus deity and he wasn't deity minus human and he wasn't a third kind, but he was fully God and fully man in one person. And, and these three, Peter, James, and John, just earlier in the Gospel of Mark, had been invited by Jesus upon the Mount of Transfiguration. And there they saw the deity of their rabbi teacher. But now they are invited into the garden, the, the place where they squeezed olives, if you will, Gethsemane. And they are invited to witness, like no other place, the humanity of Jesus. Sometimes we don't feel the humanity of Jesus, nor at Christmas, nor on Good Friday. We, we just theologically work it out. Yes, he's fully God and he's fully man. He is the God-man. But we don't understand that in the perfection of his humanity, Jesus feels deeply he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. But there is nothing in the story of our Savior like this. Nothing like this. Look at it 
verse 33, he began to be very distressed and troubled. You know, before he opens his mouth, you can read from his body language. You can tell when someone is distressed, can you not? From the body language, the countenance of the person. And Jesus is distressed. Literally, he was astonished. He was amazed. I mean, what is it going to take to amaze the miracle worker? What is it going to take to shock the good shepherd? What experience is the one who is the bread of life going to come up against that he's never encountered? That he's astonished by it. It goes on to say that he's troubled. He's amazed and astonished in anguish. It's really an anguish that is incomprehensible because he's about to experience something that is completely alien to everything that he had experienced before. He is amazed and astonished at the level of anguish. There's something new for Jesus that he's about to take on. Was it that in 70 AD, the temple, the symbol of Judaism and its worship, was going to be torn down? No, it wasn't that. Was it that he was going to be betrayed by a man whom he had invested in, whom he had had in his navigator Bible study for 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 36 months? No, it was not that. Was it that one of the remaining 11 was just in a short while around a campfire going to tell a servant girl, I don't even know this man you're talking about. Oh, no, it wasn't that. Was it the fact that by the time he's on the cross, they all have forsaken him. They all have fled. It wasn't that. You see, we, taught, we heard a testimony today about loneliness. The people are lonely. Jesus, in his humanity, would have experienced every bit of that loneliness. What was it the physical pain Jesus was thinking about? 39 lashes on his back, on his naked back, the crown of thorns on his head, the piercing the, the, of the flesh of his hands and feet. What was that what was causing him this kind of astonishment and amazement in stress? Luke goes on to say that he was sweating drops of blood. I don't know if that's literal. There has been scientifically, medicinally, a condition of stress that is so severe and it is so crazy that that actually has happened. So they could have actually been that, that while he was, you know, by a campfire, possibly it was cold that night, he was sweating like drops of blood. Like that's pretty high stress. Was it, was it the physical pain? I mean, I think Socrates in his, his own ending, he triumphed to the end. And when one of his 
cohorts or followers was feeling sorry for him. He said, man, basically man up, dude. I mean, martyrs of, of Christ have, have gone to having their heads chopped off or being lit on fire and done much better than this. They've gone out triumphantly. So, so was Jesus in his humanity wimping out because of the physical torture, because of the social uh, isolation from his friends, or was it something else? If you keep reading, you'll see that it was something much deeper that was causing the stress. Verse 34 says, He said to them, Peter, James, and John, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And medically we know that stress itself can cause death. Jesus could have died right here, right now. He says to them, remain here and keep watch. Now, what is crazy, this is a little bit of an interlude here, but what's crazy about this is that Jesus, in this moment, he is explaining what he's about to go through in the garden, and then he's like exhorting him. It's like he's, he's thinking about the three. He's thinking about the fact that they are going to be the ones in their sons of thunder, stick your foot in your mouth kind of a way, transformed by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They are the one that is going to take the good news of this crucified one from Jerusalem to Rome in less than 30 years. To the place that world hope and navigators and mustard seed are declaring the unsearchable riches of Christ both here and to the uttermost part of the world. It's going to start with two angry guys and one who wouldn't even end up to a servant girl. And so Jesus is teaching him something about reliance here in the middle of his passion. That blows my mind. He says to stay here and pray. Keep watch and pray. And then in verse 35, he goes a little beyond him. As I said earlier, stones throw forward. And he falls to the ground and he begins to pray that if it were possible, the hour, the hour, the epicenter of human history, the defining mark of our Christian faith, that hour might pass him by. And in verse 36, he was saying, and we know that he was saying this repeatedly, what we read in 36, we know that he goes back Two more times. It kind of reminds you of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 who asked God three times to take this thorn from him. So he's repeating these words over and over again. And he's saying, Abba, Daddy. This is an intimate, personal term between the Son and the Father. No, no Jew would ever use that term for God. It was too intimate. It was too personal. But in his moment of passion, he is calling God Daddy, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And, and this is something that we wrestle with, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. And we say, well, yeah, Ben, 
I mean, Jesus is God. He's God. How bad could it have hurt? Oh, dear friend, know that he is fully human. Yes, he's a perfect human, but he was in all points tempted as we have been tempted. We have a high priest, the writer to the Hebrews says, who can identify with and sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you have mental illness? Do you have emotional anxiety and depression? Do you feel the brokenness of your life and of the world and of the home and of the marriage and of the kids and of the society? Jesus can identify with you. Don't just put this in a doctrinal category and saying it doesn't relate to my life. Oh no, Jesus was really Really, genuinely asking, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Now, I, and probably you as well, think of a cup in a very nice way. This morning, I had two cups of coffee. I don't think I could ever be spirit-filled without that. (laughs) I think good things come in cups. Maybe on colder winter desert days, hot chocolate with a marshmallow on top. Or a cup of non-decaf tea at night to soothe and settle the stomach after the third piece of pumpkin pie before you go to bed. But whatever cup Jesus is referencing here is not a cup that brings up good things. It actually refers all the way through the Old Testament of God's wrath. We could go through the major prophets. We won't take the time to go down this trail. But we would see that throughout the Old Testament, God would pour out his wrath upon the nations. He was angry with God's enemies. And the very term God's wrath is a struggle for us. We are emotionally fragile humans. And the idea of wrath does not appear to be warm and intimate. It appears to be more associated with those who fly off the handle. But but this idea of removing the cup is at the very heart of the gospel. Now, there are many felt needs Uh, that we have and reasons that people are attracted to Jesus. Loneliness, emotional stability, the warmth of Christian community. But if we miss this very troublesome idea of the cup of wrath, we miss the very heart of the good news. It reminds us that God is holy and that we are sinful And that the wages of sin is death. That is really all of what we see in the Old Testament. Right up to the last Passover and the last Passover lamb. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 it says Jesus, our Passover lamb. Because the idea of substitution, of uh, what the theologians call penal uh, atonement. Penal penalty. That there's a penalty for sin And it's humbling because we are basically taught in the words of one 
a great thinker in the early centuries of the church, that we don't come off the assembly line when we're born into the world basically good or basically bad, but that we sort of come off morally neutral and then our home and our circumstances inform which way we go. We go good way, we go bad way, and then we have the classic example of the teenagers that were polled and asked, are you a good driver? And 93% said, I'm an exceptional driver. Now, I have trained six people how to drive. (laughs) I don't think we're at 93% at age 16. You see, the Bible says that we were born dead in sins. And that we were by nature, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, objects of God's wrath. Because then we say, well, he's talking about some type of wrath, some type of cup of God's anger. Wasn't that an Old Testament thing? Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 says, we were, before there was a but God moment in our lives, objects of his wrath. And it doesn't matter whether you were born in the home of an atheist, an agnostic, an Anabaptist, just to keep the A thing going. It doesn't matter whether you were born into the home of a deacon or a drunk. We come into the world already messed up on the inside. And and, and what Jesus is wrestling with is not the physical dimension of his suffering, not the social dimension of his suffering, not even the mental thing of his suffering what he is wrestling with is that he is about to become sin for us who knew no sin now you and I struggle with sin every day Paul says in Romans 7 if you're in Christ you have one part of you that's saying I delight in the law of God but Paul says I covet I'm so frustrated oh who can deliver me from this body of death We have an internal aspect of us that even though we're new creatures in Christ Jesus, all things have become new, the old is gone, we still wrestle with selfishness. You singles get married, you'll find it out. You marrieds without kids have children, you'll learn. There's something inside of you, a principle of sin that still is there. Jesus did not have that. He never told a lie. He never looked at someone with lust. He always did what pleased the Father. He never offered a single sacrifice for his own sin because he never had any. He perfectly loved the Father 24-7. He perfectly loved the neighbor as himself all of the way through his life. But what Jesus is wrestling with in the garden and why he's asking if possible, Father, Daddy, let this cup of your wrath Pass from me. If there's any other way, let's skip the cross. And in that, in his humanity, he's feeling the weight of becoming our substitute. He didn't die as a martyr. He didn't just die as an example. He is about to experience what he could never imagine. God forsaken by God. The good shepherd is about to give up his life for the sheep. I mean, what kind of shepherd dies in order that the sheep might live? What kind of a king removes his crown in order that his subjects might be crowned forever? 
And please know this, that whenever Paul talks about him or other apostles or by implication us sharing in the sufferings of Christ, there is no sense in which we share in pain the penalty for our own sin if we're in Christ. Jesus is overwhelmed. Jesus is troubled. It is a genuine cry from the perfection of his humanity. And so we come to grips with the seriousness of sin, the perfection of God. And we want to become all things to all men and be tender and humble and speak words that fit the occasion, minister grace to the hearers, but you cannot present the gospel without getting to this issue. You must see that the spirit of truth came to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and the judgment that is to come. Now, could God have answered, had, could the Father have answered Jesus' request positively? No. It, 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 I think we could just say it's theoretically possible, but it, it's not going to happen. If, if, if the Father talked back to his son at this point and said, okay, you can skip the cross. Heaven's gates are closed forever. The gates of hell swing widely open. For everybody, God is a liar. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament are a joke. And we, of all men and women, are to be most pitied. Let's go party and watch football and eat chicken wings. What are we doing here? You see, really, it's not possible. He can't skip the cross. But we see his humanity. We see that he felt and he hurt and he dreaded and he sweated and he pleaded. So we see the distress of Christ. One writer puts it this way. He says, though he really desired as a man to be delivered from the wrath of God, yet even as a man, he finally consented to endure it as the only means by which to save his people from their sins. And, and the hymn writers, they, they just, they can't pen enough words how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his, his treasure. That doesn't denigrate the gospel. That makes the gospel massive. And I think that's where the devoted comes in, or maybe submitted, verse 35, 36, 39. He keeps asking. He keeps asking. He keeps asking. He keeps submitting. He keeps submitting. He keeps submitting. So where does the disappointment come in? Well, I think you see it a bit in stages in verses 37 to 41. So you have this amazing 
this amazing thing going on between the Son and the Father, and we're privy to that. But then in the middle of all that, you have this horizontal thing going on with him and Peter and James and John. Luther put it this way, that in this scene, we see Jesus seeking comfort from those whom he had previously comforted. I know when I was diagnosed with cancer in the mid-90s, and I went to my first oncology appointment, I was holding tightly to my wife's hand. I could not have even fathomed. I was the same Benny in grade school that fainted at a first aid movie. They had to actually call the principal, turn the lights on. And I was about to find out, is it chemo, is it radiation, or is it both? I was scared to death. I can't imagine leaving her a stone's throw away. And then she was snoring while the oncologist gave me whatever was going to happen. That's exactly times a million what happened. He came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, <laughs> we saw this last time, Simon. That was his first name. It means a pebble. It means unstable. Shaky, shaky. You know, a lot of times my name, Benjamin, means son of, of my right hand. Dowdy means a shabbily dressed person. But Simon meant shaky, unstable. He says, shaky, are you asleep? <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, where's Jesus going to get any comfort? There's none coming from Peter and James and John, those he had invested in. The same things you've heard in the presence of faithful men, trust to others also, you know, keep the chain going. Jesus, he had no plan B. He was investing in these guys, and they were sleeping. Now, part of this that is helpful to understand if, if we took time to look at the parallel passage in Luke, I think it's in chapter 22, the reason that the disciples were sleeping was not just that they were lazy, but it says they were filled with sorrow. Think about the weightiness of all that they have just been told. The temple is going down, the system of worship is being done away with. I'm leaving and I'm going to my father. And where I'm going, you can't come, at least not yet. Oh, and by the way, one of you is going to betray me. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And one of you is going to deny me and everybody else is going to fall away. That's a recipe for sorrow, would you think? I mean, if these were the men who joined up and signed up for the Jesus bandwagon because he talked about kingdom and even in Acts 1, 8 or 11, they're asking him after his bodily resurrection, before his ascension, is it at that time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They signed up for this. They didn't sign up for the cross. They signed up for the crown. They didn't sign up for suffering. They signed up for Jesus taking over right then and right 
in their little world. So they're, they're you know, sometimes, and I don't know what you do when you're stressed and when you're grieving, but I think some of us just go to sleep, right? We take an Ambien and just knock out. And, or maybe your Ambien is earbuds. You know, you're just listening to some background noise to distract your mind and to dull the sorrow. And by the way, during the holiday season, people are lonely and depressed. Man, Peter, James, and John can identify with you. If Thanksgiving is hard for you, if Christmas is hard for you, they're right there. They're sorrowful. And so what do they do? They sleep. They fall asleep. Now, graciously, an angel came and attended to Christ. I think that's in another parallel passage. That didn't really fix. And this thing goes on. You know, three times he goes and he asks and he submits. And in the middle, he'd come back. The stones throw a short distance. And he'd, are you, are you, are you, are you awake? You know, just stay awake and pray. And, and, and I find that, that in my life, I am often like these three. Because at one point in the story, this is sort of jumping into it, uh, verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Boy, there's nothing like premarital counseling to bring that to light. <laughs> premarital counseling is great. I highly recommend it. But I remember when my wife and I went through premarital counseling... Eric Bjorn, the counselor, he and his wife, they're like, you know, what are your goals for your first year of marriage? Oh, man, we're going to go visit um, the nursing home every Sunday afternoon or whatever it was. And I think we were right. We did, the, the heart was there. We wanted to serve Jesus and help people that have often been alienated off the radar of ministry. Children. Orphans and widows, people that society overlooks. The heart was there, but our flesh was weak. It was just so much easier to eat too much and watch the cowboys on Sunday afternoon than go to a nursing home. So we did the latter. So I find myself identifying with this, but I also find that Jesus' words teach us that every day, in our comfortable middle-class American lives, we should not think that we're in a playground, but that we're in a battle zone. As we sit there watching our 70-inch flat-screen TV on Hulu and watching Alabama get beat, I had to throw that one in there, for, or whatever you did, that you're in a war zone. And he's saying to us, keep watching, pray, so that you won't come into temptation. It's that recognition that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And oh, aren't you so thankful that the high priest, Jesus, is praying for us? We know that that's ongoing. Romans 8 says that Jesus, the son, prays for us and that the spirit prays for us according to the will of God. And then we read in John 17 that Jesus prays for our protection and he prays for our holiness and he prays for our mission and he prays for our unity. And so we have a perfect prayer partner in Christ. That's so good. 
But he's warning us to join in that. So what do we take away from this? I know we haven't maybe covered every jot and tittle of the story. God willing, next Sunday we'll move on into middle of verse 41, maybe all the way through 52. Not sure what we're going to do with the the dude that escaped naked, uh, the, the young man. That's kind of an interesting one. Maybe I'll just skip it and let Paul or somebody else cover that. But let me leave you with a couple thoughts. I think there are three ways that we can find comfort through the cross of Christ. The first is just to reflect on his enduring love. I think uh, this whole scene is a wonderful testimony to the enduring love of Christ. You know what he could have said? Because you and I have denied him, (laughs) maybe disowned him in ways. He could have said, you know, I've been meaning to get rid of you guys. I lost one the other day, and one of you is going to make a royal mess of it. The rest of you, frankly, just aren't worth much. And so when I rise from the dead on Sunday, I'm just going to start a whole new team. You guys aren't even going to minor leagues. You're just getting, I'm taking away your jersey, and you're just, you know, you're done. Aren't you thankful that he didn't do that with you? (laughs) I think in John it says that he loved his own until the end. Isn't that an amazing thing about 1 Corinthians 13, love, that love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things, love never fails? I mean, what a friend for sinners do we have? I mean, Jesus is that friend. And you know, the good news of the gospel is not what a great saint you are, but what a great savior. That even when you lose your grip on him, he never loses his grip on you. And then I think that we just need to realize that his pain was our penalty. You know, it's possible. It's very possible, maybe even probable, that someone here today sort of views this thing like meeting God halfway. That if I were to ask you after church, while we're having a much too big burrito at Chipotle, how do you hope to get to heaven? Your answer in some way, shape, or form might come back like this. I'm a relatively good person. And, And you winced a bit, and took offense when I said that the cup that Christ asked to be removed from him was the cup of wrath because maybe you had an abusive stepdad. And like Luther, the great reformer, he couldn't even speak to God as father because of the own difficult relationship he had with his own dad. But, but I would encourage you and I would plead with you to remove yourself from that and understand that penal substitution is the very heart and the very soul of the gospel. That apart from it, heaven's gates close and the gates of hell swing widely open. And this whole thing we're doing at Texas State or with World Hope or at Mustard Seed or in your Monday night Louisville Bible study is just a big joke. But, but, but it, it points us to the fact that, that, that 
we see in the last generation, whatever that is, in Revelation 14, I think around verse 10, I don't know what iPhone will be around in, maybe iPhone 34. God says, I will make them drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. They will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. What about this? The longest gospel track God left us is the book of Romans. God's wrath is mentioned in Romans 1.18. The love of God is first referenced in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated his love. If you don't get the wrath part, you know what? Your idea of love is going to be less than what it is. So that leads to the third point. Thank God for his costly love. I know a lot of us want to picture God in his divine kitchen with pictures of us hanging on his fridge with heart-shaped magnets and it's pictures of us in our nice little sweaters. And he says, oh, I love these kids. I'll do anything for them. You know, that's the way we feel about our grandkids that we're babysitting this weekend and next while their parents are on a much-needed break. I just love them to death. They're just those precious little rugrats. But don't picture God in a celestial kitchen with you in a heart-shaped frame on his desk. Think of it maybe more this way. Benghazi. People having rocket-propelled grenades over their shoulder, rocket launchers. See them with their torches and see them assaulting the compound where God lives in Libya. Picture that scene. And God is... He lives there, and God says, I'm going to reach out and love them. You and I have assaulted the holy God of the universe by everything that we've said and done and thought and felt. As John Henderson says, all we have to do to sin is breathe. We can even sin in our sleep. And it's not just the sins of transgressing the rules of God, knowing the right thing and not doing it, and it's not only the things he told us not to do that we do. It's we were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Colossians 1 and 2 kind of talk. And all of that, and God says, those are the people I choose to love. You see, that's really what should follow our favorite verse. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to be agonizing in a garden so he could go to a cross and be executed naked and beaten, having to march through the town with no clothes and a cross over his shoulder as people spit on him and Roman soldiers beating him. That's how much God loved his own. And when you put God's love on Twitter or on your Instagram account, make sure that that's the love that's a biblical love, a costly love, a love that demands our life and our soul and our all. Find comfort through his cross. Why don't we have the worship team come and as you stand, I'll pray and then we'll transition and respond as we worship. Father, thank you for your Amazing love, how can it be that you are God 
should die for me. It's that kind of love that we can gain an interest in your blood, O Christ. O God, I pray for any that have sentimentalized your love and minimized your wrath, deified man and humanized God and minimized sin. That, O God, while we are adopted and we're loved more than we could ever imagine, that it came at an infinite price to our Savior. And God, we love you because you first loved us and gave your Son and exhausted the wrath that was aimed at us upon him. So there's not a a drop left for us. Instead of a cup of wrath, we get a cup of blessing, overflowing with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. Fill our hearts with wonderment of these things, O God. Pray in Christ's name. Praise the Lord that his word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. We would also love to have you join us at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. for connections and 10 a.m. to 12.30 for our worship service. We are located at 1385 Northwestern Drive on the west side of El Paso, along with our hosting sister church, Mission de Gracia. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-861-6900 or visit our website at gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.